Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on April the 14th, 2011. For newcomers, look into the website cuttingthroughthematrix.com. There's hundreds of audios to choose from and hopefully I can help to tie a lot of loose ends together for you to show you how this big system that you're born into actually works. And it works far differently from uh, the techniques that you think uh, about, if you think about it at all. In fact, most folk think we just go through time, down through time, and politicians deal with crisis after crisis as they just happen uh, to be at the time. And nothing is further from the truth because you're in a planned agenda, a planned society. And the thing about government is like big, any big corporation, which it, actually it is, they, they plan far, far ahead into the kind of society they want to have in 50 or even 100 years or maybe even more. And we have evidence of this, of course, in the writings of the big boys who belong to the big societies, which advise, actually, the order government as to what to do. And they, they love to write about their hand in shaping the future and the kind of society, what kind it will be, fascist, socialist, whatever, or a combination of the two. And it's ongoing with all these international meetings with big private corporations and clubs, clubs which pretend that they're foundations into charities and so on, but in reality they're very active in shaping cultures uh, and the financial systems across the world into one big happy, not so happy family, happy for those who certainly will rule it and actually do rule it already. So help yourself to the audios and you can also find transcripts in English of a lot of the talks as well and all the sites you see listed at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. These are the official sites I have, the only ones. And you can also get transcripts in other languages if you go into alanwatchsentinel.eu. You've got a choice to choose from there, so help yourself for, for the transcripts there. And remember, you are the audience that bring me to you, so if you want me to continue, I, I come from a different perspective generally. I don't just hype up the, today's hype or terror uh, and leave it at that from the, what the media tells you. I add with my knowledge, to what the media omits. And it's very important that because, you see, you're left with a certain perspective on things according to what the media leaves you with, and they always omit big, big parts of the story, and you always get the false perspective. So I hope to fill in all the blank spots for you to give you a better picture of what's actually happening. And I don't sell things either on this particular broadcast. So it's up to you to keep me going. Buy the books and discs I have for sale, and hopefully I can take on a little bit more. Uh, you'll find out how to do it at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. You can use personal check from the U.S. You can use international postal order from the U.S. You can use um, cash. You can also use PayPal to order. Use a donation button and follow it with an email with name, address, and order. I'll get it out to you. And across the world, you know how to do it. It's Western Union, MoneyGram. Uh, some people can send cash. And you can use PayPal again to order 
user donation button. And remember, straight donations are also very, very, very welcome because uh, things are getting tight all around as inflation goes up and the prices in Canada are even far higher than in the U.S., and even though they've gone up about a third in the last few months, even for their food, Canada's even gone up much higher. Plus, we've got extra taxes and new taxes added to that, too, this year as well. So, uh, as, as I say, if you want to keep me going, you know how to do it. But this big system, uh, steam rolls ahead, regardless of wars or catastrophes. Everything, Every disaster is used to their advantage. The, the CFR have often said, the members often come out and say this after disasters. How can we use this to our advantage? What they mean is, will it fit into our plan for the big, great society of the planet that they've planned for us? Giving up your rights, that's what it means. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix. You know, sometimes I get an email, occasional email about someone who, and there's so many folk out there of course who have got, they're really into types of societies and so on, and uh, they're really either in, really into a form of capitalism or, or even fascism or communism or socialism, all the isms, and they, they get upset once in a while when you, you talk about certain things that riles them, it's against their grain, their doctrine, their indoctrination. And this is the key to all isms, you see, because people like to lose themselves. The whole thing about mass movements is to lose yourself within the mass movement. You give up your independence. You're willingly, happily, in fact, you give it up because other people then uh, will run the show for you. And that really is what socialism is about. I remember a few years ago, uh, someone who emailed me quite a few times, uh, he was was down on his luck. Um, welfare people were coming in, and after a while, he got worried because his young daughter began to call uh, the social workers by their first names and would phone them up when she had any problem on anything at all that, that she would normally work out for herself or uh, work through the family or friends or whatever, any kind of trivial problem at all, what should I do about this or that or whatever? And she was treating them like parents. And that's exactly the system that Bertrand Russell said they would encourage, where the state would give the values uh, to the children and really become a f- the form of parents, really. All the parents had to do, according to Russell, was to provide the, the, the money to raise the child. The state would do the rest. Well, we're, we're pretty well there. And you also get generations in of people who are dependent on welfare, and they themselves have an awfully hard time. One, one in a, maybe a thousand have the ability to break out of the mindset when you're raised and born, born and raised in that kind of society, because it's not easy to. It's easier to go along with with social workers saying you got to look for this job today, and they send you the job to go and look for, and so on. They decide everything for you. You, all the responsibility is taken off of you. And so whatever individuality you had is submerged into the mass, as you say. Same with people who join big organizations. They like to, even including religions when they're on a roll. Uh, and religions once in a while do go on a roll. 
uh, they lose themselves in the, the greater belief, the greater system, uh, and responsibilities taken off of them because in all mass movements, uh, suppliers, the, the, the leaders are supplied uh, for them who make all the decisions and then you end up with a bureaucracy. doesn't matter what they're, they're, they're wearing, um, uh, dog collars as they call them or not, or called wardens or whatever, it's a hierarchy above you that make all the right decisions for you, and lots of folk like that. So lots of people do like socialism, and lots are going into this new world order, uh, and uh, they've got different ideas about it, but generally they think it's going to be some sort of happy melting pot of the world. Some of them still think they can be able to travel across the world and live where they want. Well, you won't be able to do that. Because you haven't read the books on it, you've got the you've got the external propaganda that's put up by word of mouth, but you haven't done your study to find out what you're even talking about. So uh, there's a sad comment on humanity, but people have in the past joined mass movements, and it's a relief for many of them to do so. To say the responsibility is now off of them for all the failures or, or successes or whatever in life. It's, it's on someone else's shoulders or the collective hold it together and you simply know what your duties are within the system. That's why uh, those who have brought in this new world order have used the isms, have used capitalism, they've used communism, uh, Trotskyism is big right now actually, and uh, socialism. All the different isms have been used to bring in uh, this future planning to a world society, which is to be authoritarian, remember, as all isms ultimately must become. And they don't like democracy. They've said that at the Club of Rome. They said, in fact, it's obsolete. And they've said that they can't get their big plans done for the world with different parties arguing and haggling over what they want. Uh, therefore, they do it in, in a different way. Right now, they go through a parallel government the parallel government consists of about a thousand major foundations and think tanks. It's a thousand points of light that Bush Sr. Uh, referred to. And they also have all their hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of uh, non-governmental organizations and their front groups that uh, do all the lobbying, all the work, all, all the protesting when required uh, to governments, and then the governments come along and say, thank you, you turned up, we want to pass this bill, and you've given us a reason to do so. So government works hand in glove with the NGOs that protest against them. So that's really how it works. It's a, a wonderful show. It's a show for the public who don't belong to different camps, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing for a lot of people who are technically socialist by nature. Remember, communism really was socialism, and uh, Nazism was supposedly national socialism. Communism was international socialism. Uh, the Fabian Society was also international soci- socialism. And the Fabian Society was a society that was designed to bring the same system across the Western countries, which w- weren't fertile ground, as Lenin called it, uh, t- for the doctrine. They couldn't get uprisings the same way in, a, in a, what technically was a free society. It wasn't as free as you think, but... But uh, when there's a, a form of freedom within society, it's much, much harder to get folk to revolt and get the quick revolution over and done with. So that to do it through infiltration and through universities and teaching by professors who would ensure that students became indignant when they're, when they're given half a story on something. It's easy to get youngsters angry about something that seems obviously unfair to them. 
and the professor's job was to omit a lot of the stories to make things obviously unfair. They still do this today. And they're all hand-picked, these, these particular professors. They're well-funded, of course, and in with the professorship comes a big grant from the foundations. Often the grant comes first, and then the foundation tells the, the university which professor they're going to have. That's how it really does work. So in a sense, they're agents, many of them. Not all of them, but many of them. And lots of folk will love socialism when they don't have to make a single decision on what they have to do. You have bureaucrats, and then you have down to this, the local level in, in agencies deciding for you and calling you up and visiting you at the door. So if you want that kind of world, uh, you're welcome to it. But personally, I really don't. Individualism is what it's all about here because all the big foundations, the United Nations and others, have said they must destroy the cult of individuality. That's what they, te- they really hate it, so they call it the cult of individuality. It's an oxymoron, because if you're individual, you don't belong to anything, really. You think for yourself. And when you even look at extreme right-wing, as it used to be called, extreme right-wing meant you'd have hardly any government at all. That's what it really was about where a society where people would govern themselves and have the rights to govern themselves and defend themselves too when required without government agencies coming down on them for for doing so. It's almost akin to the original form of anarchism. Anarchism too was a true anarchist. It wasn't someone who went around lobbing bombs at people. He wasn't someone who assassinated people or joined groups to do so. He was supposed to be an individual who could travel the world, go through communities, listen politely to people, not be obnoxious, but would never be coerced into joining anything he didn't agree with. And that really is what the original anarchism was all about, the idea that the person could be self-governing. People have forgotten all about that. And people definitely, in, in the U.S., for instance, have been taught, uh, whether they know it or not, they've been, it's, it's a subtle intergenerational training that government is, is there not to serve the people, but you're there to serve them. Every movie they turn out, especially the disaster movies, which have many predictive programming scenarios within them, are also teaching you that government is, is an authority and it's there by its own means. It's self-perpetuating, and you just simply jump and do what you're told. You never see in these disaster movies anything about uh, the rights of the people. It's always government deciding for the people what's best for them, uh, supposedly. But in reality, as you know, governments, especially when you're when you're left to vote between two or three parties, or they're all multimillionaires, which which ones do you want to vote for? These people have so much in common with you, right? Yeah. Well, they all belong to the same organizations, clubs, golf clubs, and all the rest of it, and have gone to the same schools, Ivy League schools, and so on, and they've got nothing in common with you whatsoever. They all have shares in the same big international corporations, and they do what's best for their own kind, their own class. And it's something, too, you have to understand. Class, The class system definitely, definitely has always been with us, and as far as I can see, the way it's going always will be with us. They'll just give it different names for different levels. That's as simple as that. So, for those that want to lose their individuality by joining the big crowd, as they call it at the top, then it's up to you. It certainly is easier. It's, it's easier to, to be given all the propaganda to, to spout so you'll be politically correct amongst your own 
kind, and if you can put up with it, good luck to you. Uh, I really try and speak to those who are trying to attain individuality because it's far more important. You do that in your lifetime. No, 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 no one else can do it for you. And uh, to know the truth about things and to, to suffer the occasional setbacks and defeats uh, and victories as well. That's what makes a person a complete person. It's the same with advertising too. No ad would ever sell with straight faces and a product displayed in front of you. It's always people who are having mass orgasms because they bought toothpaste or a toothbrush or something like that. And they've also taught this in society, egocentric behavior again, egocentric behavior, uh, that you're supposed to be happy, happy, happy all the time, like someone in acute mania. Uh, of course, nothing is further from the truth. You have to have the ups and the downs in life to make you, to give you wisdom. And wisdom one time was highly valued from all tribes down through the ages. Highly valued. That was the most important thing of all. Back with more after this break. Hi, folks. We're back, cutting through the matrix. Just talking about uh, the individual versus the mass and how... Lots of folk like to join the Mass, and you can be trained to join the Mass too once you're in it, uh, especially if it carries on a long time, maybe your whole life, and you end up with third, fourth generation welfare. Uh, that's normalcy to people then, where every decision is made by superiors and agencies and social workers and so on, and all the big decisions in life uh, are taken off of the shoulders, and it's easier for some people to do that. But for others, it's anathema, it's a killer, it destroys them totally, body and soul, and that's why you have so much problems uh, when it really is in its heyday, its height. And of course, we get more and more of that as the economy goes down the tubes and more, more, more folk are joined to the welfare lists and need aid from different sources, etc. And we also have, of course, the massive, incredible armies of bureaucracies and government agencies now uh, invading homes for children, taking children off and all the rest of it, regardless of the class that they go into. And um, it's happening across the world because you're living in a globalized society where all organizations really are all connected at the hub of the United Nations. And so they all work together. Everything eventually comes down from the United Nations. In tonight's show, I'll also put up uh, a link to YouTube where... Uh, it shows you the cesium that's been coming in over Canada and the U.S., uh, and they're now up into the mid-levels, mid sometimes occasionally the higher levels. And um, the, the, the mainstream media is totally silent about this. And almost every single uh, radiation, government radiation um, site has been has pulled its graphs down uh, so that we can't see what's going on. There's only one, one or two left. And even they are, are being censored now. I know that for a fact. But I'll put this link up tonight so you can see what's been happening over the last day or so and what's to come scheduled for the next few days. They've also mentioned, too, that uh, I think number four reactors are in trouble again. I don't know how many times they're going to be in trouble or what's left to fission off in there. But uh, they say it'll take three months or so 
to, to stop doing this, and then they're going to try and decommission them. Decommissioning, it takes 10 years to clean it out. But for three months, the stuff's going to be giving uh, the stuff off into the air and the sea uh, constantly pretty well. I'll put that link up tonight. And also with Japan, they've had meetings um, before about moving the capital over to a different area, the capital of, of Japan, because it's so prone now to earthquakes. They, they want to build a new capital, and I'll put that link up tonight for those who want to see it. Uh, I'm also talking about the suicide rates tonight because there's an article here, for instance, suicide rates in the U.S. increase as the economy declines, the CDC researchers find. Uh, it says they tend to rise during recessions and fall amid economic booms, according to study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, it says this, this reached a record high of 22 people per 100,000 in 1932 during the Great Depression, CDC officials said in a report published online today in the American Journal of Public Health. That was double the rate seen in 2000 when 10 people per 100,000 took their lives as the economy prospered, the study found. It's the first to link business cycles and suicide rates among specific age groups, according to the Atlanta-based CDC. People people in their prime working ages of 25 to 64 years old are the most likely to commit suicide during recessions, the studies found. Well, it's nothing new because Britain already had done theirs and it's, and it's much the same. And one of the top politicians came out and was actually um, reprimanded for saying, of course, there's, there's more suicides in recession and there's also way more um, um, burglaries and so on as folk try to survive. So he was slapped in the wrist for that. It says economic problems can impact how people feel about themselves and their futures as well as their relationships with family and friends. Uh, says Feijun Luo, an economist in CDC's Division of Violence Prevention, and the study's lead author said today in a statement, prevention strategies can focus on individuals, families, neighborhoods, or entire communities to reduce reduce the risk factors. What they're doing is setting up, again, another little branch that's tucked in in with Homeland Security, for those who don't know, and I won't tell you on this article here either, uh, to, to actually monitor everyone's lives even more thoroughly and have people in your local areas monitor what they think is mental health of everybody. That's what they're using this for, because the CDC is not there, again, like every other agency, to actually help you or to do what you imagine is there to do. And another interesting article, too, because it says customs officials in Vladivostok seized a radioactive cargo of 50 cars from Japan, the level of radiation is two times higher than normal. The car has been kept in an isolated area whilst decided what to do with them. The recipient said they do not have the right to send them back to Japan. Earlier this, this week, customs in Vladivostok seized a cargo of 20 radioactive cars. Intensive beta radiation was discovered during a checking of the Asian ice ship, it's called. This is the first large shipment of radioactive second-hand cars from Japan, you can see them all dumping them from the area, can't you? I mean, obviously, the people around there are selling them like crazy. Uh, used cars, which would be in excellent condition, apart from the fact that uh, the lifetime warranty will be about three years, if you're lucky. Earlier, he heightened levels of radiation. Heightened red levels of radiation were found on several private vehicles as well. So, 
There you go, as they keep telling you it's not too bad, etc., etc. Free lead underwear with every car. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. We're back. This is Cutting Through the Matrix. And this world we live in isn't really a pleasant world. We have the Disney world view of it because we've, we've been trained to view things from a Disney perspective. But the real harsh world out there is, uh, and when you understand the real harsh world, you can decide yourself if you want to join those at the top by being a shark yourself or or being a loser, as they call those who are in the dark as a general population, the ones who believe in the Disney world that they've been trained to believe in. But here's an article here that really exemplifies this. It says, healthcare scoring for the dead pool. This is the term of it, the dead pool. Hedge funds, betting on how long you will live. This is, the, uh, a, this is a, a solution. A bond made up of life settlements would ideally have policies from people with a range of diseases. Leukemia, lung cancer, heart disease, breast cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's. That's because if too many people with leukemia are in the securitization, uh, securitization portfolio and a cure is developed, the value of the bond would plummet. So they don't want cures, you see. Uh, it says the, the medical records that are now available to anyone and everyone who might have a financial interest in your health, the same records about you that you yourself can no longer gain access to in most cases, are for sale to stakeholders, investors, and interested parties. Insurance companies are particularly interested. As we stated in an earlier article, when Obamacare is implemented, it will establish a health score to be applied to your records and updated with each doctor visit. The score will be available to insurance companies with accompanying medical data that will allow them to determine how much of a risk you pose to the profits they anticipate by insuring you under a hedge fund. Quite something, eh? That's what a real stock market. Stock means cattle, by the way. You know, animals, that's where you sold them. They were called stock. You'll be rated as, as to how much of a risk you represent to the system. This score is being used to determine what and how much health care you are eligible to receive. It's to be rationed, you see. As the bill clearly states, panels will determine what risk you pose to the system and weigh that against the odds you can recover. And if you do, what would be the value of your future contributions to society? Can you keep paying taxes and work? That's what it is. I've been saying this for years. It says, odds not good, off to the dead pool you go. Enter the insurance companies. Your score on these medical records are being used to determine your eligibility to be entered into the dead pool being constructed by life insurance companies. The dead pool is comprised of those in the healthcare system who have diseases such as lung cancer, breast cancer, leukemia, heart disease, or any possible terminal, genetic, or acquired illnesses. Hedge funds are being established where investors in the fund are betting against you and how long you might live with the disease. The hedge fund is projecting your possible life expectancy and betting against you. Now, it's also true the farmers uh, buy these up too because 
uh, they like uh, long-term diseases. They don't like to, to cure anything because it's not profitable to give a cure out for anything. So they want to treat you for the rest of your lives, you see. That's how it really works. So it says um, this should affect the, 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 the solution is that a bond made up of the life settlements would ideally have policies from people with a range of diseases, as I mentioned earlier. It says this would uh, effectively halt any real research into finding cures for many diseases. Not there is much of that actually occurring anyway. It says this article is from the New York Times 2009, shows these plans for Deadpool investments are well underway. Uh, it says anything for a buck right, even in a morbid betting on how long you will live. So I'll put that link up to cuttingthroughmatrix.com at the end of this evening. And we'll go to the callers now, and there's Ted from New York City. Are you there, Ted? Yes, I am, Alan. Yep. I thank you so much for providing the uh, gracious knowledge and service you do. Um, I have a question. This is kind of harkens back to the country of Rhodesia when yeah. they declared independence. It became moved from southern Rhodesia to Rhodesia. Ian Smith and his unilateral declaration of independence, I think it was 64, maybe 65. What was their role in the world system at that time? And they were a pariah state, so I, I'm kind of interested because since they were founded by Cecil Rhodes, at least that countries of northern Rhodesia, southern Rhodesia, were founded by Rhodes. Could you tell me, please? And I'll hang up. Yeah, it was, it was number one, it was a base as well because uh, Cecil Rhodes and the group that he worked for, which again became the Royal Institute of International Affairs, this private corporation that was given a charter by the Crown to exist. Uh, as you know, they also um, used the same group, and Cecil Rose was involved in creating the South African or, or Boer War to grab South Africa too. Uh, but they used Rhodesia as a, a primary base to set it up, and also a base where, where they would try and bring in what's happening today, a united African bloc, by causing fomenting riots and, and uh, fight, tribal fighting, infighting, uh, across the whole of Africa, not all at the same time, this one place after another, and hopefully get it under what they called at that time the British Empire. And um, so private companies, uh, I mean, what, what you've got with the Rhodes Foundation at that time is the exact same system you've got about with that uh, group I mentioned last night, the International Crisis Group with Brzezinski and Armitage and all these guys on it. Uh, they, they cause riots, they, they foment riots, they, they pay uh, agitators to go in and get the fighting started, and then they bring, then they get, they, they call on the troops from outside. Britain did this too, she's roasted this. He would say, oh, we're under attack, even though they weren't, and in would come the British troops and stick the flag in for them. So it was really a, a base to an extent, but it was also rich in diamonds and gold, etc., because at the same time as we're taking over these countries, these private companies, uh, like the Rose Groups, etc., working with the Rothschilds, were actually grabbing the diamonds and the gold and so on and all the minerals on the land that was taken over. So private companies have really always been in the forefront of uh, guiding governments to use troops and come in and protect what they then put the stakes down. So that was its, its whole purpose. Um, once they claimed uh, Rhodesia as well, um, they had the backing of the British government. And Britain, of course, worked uh, heavily with them as part of the sort of Commonwealth. And uh, so they were totally protected. 
Uh, and so they wanted a whole bunch of a collection of, of states to be, to be unified eventually into uh, a solid African Union. Uh, and that's still going on today, by the way. It's, it hasn't really stopped. Hmm. And finally, Ian Smith, he died in 2007. Um, I'm just surprised his role because he kind of did something with at least the face value of history, the the, eso, the exoteric reading of history that he declared independence like the United States from England, even mm-hmm. though his project failed. It, they didn't have the mandate of heaven because they didn't have really a positive organizing principle. You know, they didn't reach out to their native populations. They just focused on their white people there. But uh, what was his role in the world system? And, and, and I'm surprised he was able to live uh, to a ripe old age because old age, he lived under Zimbabwe, uh, in Zimbabwe under Mugabe. Yeah, it's because they're all at the right time. I mean, these guys at the top are always pre-selected by the same organization. There was the Milner Group, and then it was called Royal Institute of International Affairs. Uh, so all, every president they had was the same way. Uh, still is today, in fact, across the, the world. But um, the idea was it was time. They knew eventually that they, to get Africa to unite into a, a block country, uh, they'd have to give them what appears to be the power. And they'd have to eliminate, uh, again, um, the white people who had ruled over them for so long. And even when, and there's no doubt about it, when Rhodesia went down, for instance, uh, Britain had plenty of warning. And here's a country and South Africa that had gone to war each time Britain called as being part of the Commonwealth. They sent their boys off and... Uh, and so they thought that Britain and, and the rest of the world would come in uh, to stop this, uh, the, the African National uh, Army coming in. And the, the, the ANC were coming through Africa. They're heavily equipped, uh, well-armed, and all the rest of it. And the oddest thing is, at the time, Margaret Thatcher, for instance, did nothing to stop it, nothing at all to stop it, and, and, not, and hardly even mentioned it. And immediately some people, I, myself included, I knew... Uh, that this was the plan. They wanted this to succeed. They wanted the whites to be, to be driven out and to give the, the Africans a sense that actually they were in charge of their own country for the first time in the hope that they would y- y- carry on and unite the whole of Africa as a trading block. Uh, and again, it's always a con in these trading blocks because you still find that private corporations end up still ruling them and then they get their puppet governments to, to protect, you know, from their own population to represent the, the people, and the guys at the top always know in reality what their roles are. So it was really uh, geopolitics at work, um, and had, the white population had done their job for long enough, but to really grab the goodies and the whole of Africa, that to let Africans pretend that it was now their country for the first time. That, that was really what it was about. If you notice, the big companies like De Beers and so on uh, still are running the countries, really. Uh, and they're still the, the biggest employers, and they're, they're, and they, could, they can actually set lower prices uh, under the new governments uh, for extracting the stuff and getting the diamonds and so on out of the country than they did under the old system, so that it's even more profitable for them. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Very good. Okay. And thanks for calling. So, yeah, I mean, they can set up the systems. You want to understand, too, those who run this international system have no allegiance to any country 
or any particular group of people. The peasant in England is the same as the peasant anywhere else. And uh, uh, they, they will use those peasants for a set amount of time, 50 years, whatever it happens to be. They'll plan it way in advance, in fact. And then uh, if it means writing them off physically at the end, they allow it to happen. And that's just how these big guys work. That's how they work. Now, um, there's also Joe from California there. You're there, Joe. Alan, can you hear me all right? Yes, I can, yeah. Okay. I just had a uh, comment and then a question, and I'm going to have to hang up and listen offline. Um, the comment was, uh, you mentioned a lot about saying that you shouldn't watch television, and I just wanted to say I totally agree with that. I haven't watched TV consistently for about five or six years. Mm-hmm. Whenever I do see it now, it just it seems really kind of strange and almost like an assault on your senses. It is. And just wanted to encourage people out there to try and do the same. Mm-hmm. Even, if you, even if you have to wean yourself off it, just try try doing it. Yeah. Um, the question I had is you mentioned something last week in a, in a program about merchant banks. And it just reminded me of some Monty Python sketches where they always seem to take shots at the merchant bankers. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of wondering uh, if you knew, you know, sort of what that, you know, what the sort of bias was towards merchant bankers and at Monty Python. Yeah, the, the merchant bankers are, are it's a term that you don't hear much today, but the merchant bankers, really, uh, the big, the guys who owned the commercial trading routes and shipping lines, and all commerce uh, were also the, the the guys who set up the bankers, the banks themselves, and they're called merchant banks. And they used to also take, uh, basically, uh, put out loans there for ships that would come in or might not come in. They also had insurance companies. That's how Lloyd's of London started, along with uh, the merchant banking system. And so they also bet, just like that last article on, on people betting on your, your life, with your health care, uh, they also bet on, on ships not coming in. I mean, you can't beat these guys. You've got every corner in, in, uh, uh, literally worked out. But uh, the merchant bankers really were families that came in uh, to to Europe. Uh, a lot of them were based in Frankfurt for an awful long time, and they moved into other countries like the Rothschilds did that. They were merchant bankers. Uh, they uh, did world trading. Uh, as I say, they owned trading routes. They owned... Um, uh, corporations across the world to deal, to dealt with trading and they dealt also with the money lending even to people in trading. Uh, trading could be a risky business so they'd lend money to them, high interest rates and so on and, and eventually they set up their big merchant banks in, in London especially after Frankfurt but they also did it same in Italy and, and elsewhere. So they're, they're a different breed. They're, they're just not your, your normal little um, uh, bank that you go in and cash a check in. Uh, these, these guys deal with, with literally trade, across, massive trade across the world, international trade in a sense. And that's how the big banks in London uh, around the Templar area, the old Templar area, and that's not by coincidence either. That's why they set up there and uh, they have four banks facing each other and then you have the big uh, obelisk next to the river, right next to them. Uh, that's one of their symbols wherever they go down through time. So merchant bankers are a different kettle of fish, as I say, from a small branching bank. Uh, they deal with even lending to nations, for instance. You know. Hello? 
I guess he went off there to listen. So it's a different breed again. You, you find interesting enough if you read into Benjamin Franklin's writings and uh, his diaries and so on. He, he mentions that he went over to London. It's never been explained, of course, this strange little guy, Benji Franklin. But uh, he went over to London and uh, he went over to meet and mix with and learn from the merchant bankers of London. Uh, you don't get just to go over there and meet them in any era just like that. Believe you me, uh, there are certain things you have to be in the first place to even mix with them. But uh, he got a lot of his uh, tuition over there at that time before he was, he was made more popular and famous. He even met Rothschild and discussed how the American money system worked compared to the British system. And Rothschild wasn't very pleased with the fact that he found out that American Americans created their own script, as they called money, and they didn't, that it wasn't based on debt, uh, as it was in, in London. So Rothschild wasn't too happy. He, he actually wrote about it in papers and said that they'd have to alter the American system because if it wasn't debt-based, then America could really take off, off and show a different system of handling money or, sh- or creating money to the world. So the merchant bankers are awfully important people. And as I say, they, they own all commerce of the world. They own the banking, the real banking systems to the big, big banks of the world too. That's what they are. Uh, there's uh, Tammy from New Jersey. Are you there, Tammy? Yeah, hi. Um, isn't it funny what you just mentioned about uh, South Africa? If yep. you, in case you didn't know, the capital is called Pretoria, as in the Roman Praetorian Guard. And yes. Of they, they, they gave, this, they gave yeah. the country the Afrikaners, and then they, later on they burned them. And, and, uh, and I was just uh, looking at uh, what you put up uh, about the YouTube, the Mr. Akira, uh, the, about the, the nuclear reactors. And I was thinking what you said about, uh, uh, um, you know, predictive programming. Mm-hmm. Then I thought about what Alex Jones has mentioned, and that is that the people who think that, uh, people who are the social engineers think that there are three groups that need to go into the future. Mm-hmm. The Northern Europeans, the Jews, and the uh, Japanese. So then why would they go ahead and destroy Japan if that's one of the groups that needs to go into the future? And I'll take my hands off the air. Thank okay. you. Back after this. Hi folks, we're back and we're cutting through the matrix. And just to answer a question about um, what are Israel's most favored nations and races actually, Darwin called them most favored races uh, in his book, the ones who should survive into the future. Now, I don't know about the Japanese, but I know that um, H.G. Wells wrote a list out of the ones that he was taught at that time by the Fabian Society that he was a founder member of, and his boss was Lord Astor. And um, he mentioned that the different races that should go on into the future and the ones that should be eliminated uh, that those who cause trouble uh, wouldn't cooperate in this economic system and obey a, a sort of socialist master system uh, would have to be eliminated. And he, had, he wrote a few down, that the Scots and the Irish and a few other ones were to be eliminated. He said that the Africans would also have to either uh, mimic the white man 
and those who could mimic the white man in economics would be allowed to survive, the rest would just have to perish. But um, uh, the Japanese, I've never heard of the Japanese, I know John Stuart Mill was the first one to ever write this uh, for the British crown, a list of races that were desirable races uh, with all their different characteristics and traits, the ones who should come into the future. And he was a top economist, as was his son. But um, they, they talked, a very similar list was put out by them, the H.G. Wells uh, augmented. And they mentioned Jews in it too, as did Wells. And uh, uh, Wells said because of the, the various purges it had down through time, then the fittest of them had succeeded to come through and be very um, uh, successful economically, so they would be saved as well. That was again um, mentioned by Charles Galton, uh, cousin of Charles Darwin, who, uh, if I remember, he talked to the Jewish Congress of Britain twice on two occasions, and he also said the same thing, that the, the, the Jews should actually be grateful for all their purges because it really killed off all the weak, as he called them, and allowed those with the most cunningness and the most ability to survive, so they were very, very successful. And so I guess he thought that was a good thing for all people to go through. Um, so the Japanese, if they were possibly come through, it would be because, once again, Americans and, and uh, those who ruled Britain, I don't see the British people, those who ruled Britain, um, uh, thought the Japanese were so obedient to a system and that's what they like, is, is people who are obedient to a system without question, and they're very thorough, they have pride in their work, etc. Uh, so if, if they were to come through, I don't know about them, I haven't seen a list with their names on them, it'd be for that purpose only. They have a, a personal pride, a personal honor, and pride in their work, and they have a, a hierarchy system which they don't question at all. Um, a very, much of a caste-type system, you might say, as far as the workplace goes. Uh, so that would be the only reason I could see for them coming in too. Um, China was to be picked uh, because, again, they had, they'd never really had individuality. It was never a thing in China to, to promote individualism. And they were very obedient first to emperors and empresses and then to the communist state. And the communist state now has been uh, really uh, applauded by the United Nations as the perfect, perfect example for the world to follow for the new world order. Uh, where it's, it's non-democratic, it's an orderly society, everybody obeys their bosses or, or else. And, um, and, and they're very, they're hard workers. So they don't put their pride in it that the Japanese do whatsoever. But, um, there's so many of them too that, that, that labor is cheap. That's why they picked China to, to make the, to be the manufacturer for the planet. This, the Council of Foreign Relations, Royal for International Affairs, decided that back in the 1930s when it was still a third world country. Your money, tax money, and the World Trade Organization and all the treaties sent your factories over to China, for those who don't know. Well, from Hamish and myself, Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God or your gods go with you.